Have you ever had a question for your pastor that is so off the wall that you're afraid to ask? Well, I'm here to ask for you. I'm your host, Hunter Brin, and this is Thousand Question Christian. Here's how it's going to work. Each week, I'm going to bring in two guest pastors, and I'm going to ask them questions in three different categories. One's going to be a stump the pastor kind of question. So imagine questions maybe atheists or agnostic might ask, or just general questions about Christianity. Two, we are going to dive into some of the weird stuff in the Bible, some of the weird Bible verses, some of the weird Bible stories, and just kind of dive into what those mean and why they're in the Bible. Three is going to be a space for me to ask for pastoral advice, where we will talk generally about subjects like prayer, dealing with grief, and aspects of faith. Today I'm joined by... RJ, and I'm the Associate Director of Serving Ministries at the Annual Conference. My name is Taylor. I am currently the pastor of Cokesbury United Methodist Church in Woodbridge, Virginia, and soon to be the pastor of Raleigh Court United Methodist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Where I have served five and a half years for five and a half years and recently moved to Daniel Conference. And that wasn't on purpose. That was a total accident on my part, asking you guys both to be on the show today. So Taylor, you also have a podcast too, right? Oh, I'm part of many podcasts, too many podcasts. I'm part of the Crackers and Grape Juice team. We're a podcast team that we've been putting together podcast for the last five to six years. Uh, I help edit that podcast and produce it, but I'm primarily responsible for the Strangely Warmed podcast. Stole that from John Wesley. It's a lectionary podcast where every week we release an episode on Monday that uh, uses the coming Sunday's lectionary readings to help uh, pastors and lay people prepare their hearts and minds uh, for the reading of the word on Sunday mornings. And I've been doing that for four and a half, five years, something like that. I've gone all the way through the lectionary cycle and going through the second time and yeah that's interesting that yeah, i do that cool. in addition to like being a pastor you know fun stuff it's a lot of work uh, well cool so we'll just kind of head into the category so uh our first one's going to be the stump the pastors and like i said last episode um you know we've got some people who's, who think that we haven't been trying to stump pastors we've just been talking about christian questions which is fine and i think this this category will eventually evolve into that but f- uh, last week, we talked about the problem of evil um, in the existence of God. And so this week, I think we're going to dive into proof. So where is your proof that God is real? Is it a tangible proof? Is it uh, an intangible proof? What do you guys think? RJ, you go first. So for me, uh, growing up in a pastor's family, it, it would be easy for me to say that everything that I see around my family members, it itself can become a truth or proof. But I believe that there was a moment and that might be more of a, it could be called intangible. I, for, for me, it's more tangible. There was a moment where I had that true feeling where everything that I saw, everything that I learned, everything that I have in my head was believable. And when I say it was a moment, I don't think that was necessarily a proof. It was a moment that transformed my belief. And for me, I believe that proof is not needed for belief, for your belief. But at the same time, I believe that God embraces our desire to seek for that proof. And in a way, whether or not I had desired it, whether or not I was longing for it, that moment have been a time and a moment, uh, that moment have been a time and an event that cemented my belief. And maybe you can call that proof. 
No, you, Taylor. Where do you see proof that God exists? So I, I can talk about this for hours. I'm going to try to rein this in a little <laughs> bit. But um, I remember when I was in high school, I came across this quote from Kurt Vonnegut. He said the only proof he ever needed for the existence of God was music. And he was an atheist, <laughs> which is just like, you know, kind of a, a wild thing. Um, when I was in college, I got, I got really into Thomas Aquinas, this Catholic theologian um, from the 13th century. And he, he had this thing called the five proofs. And there were these philosophical, logical proofs for the existence of God. And, the, you know, it followed through all the stuff. And I was really fascinated by that. And, and when I was in college and I learned that I started doing some study in like science and religion. And I tried to rewrite Thomas's proofs because I wanted to prove to, you know, my, my like sort of secular college friends, Hey, you all need to believe this too, because I can prove it to you. And I did this huge research paper and I presented it to the class and it didn't sway anybody, <laughs> which probably says more about my college writing than anything else. However, uh, I've come to realize that faith is a gift and you, you, you know, just like, you know, we, we were just on the other side of Easter, you can't prove the resurrection. Um, our, our worship of Easter is predicated on a handful of people who saw and experienced something so wild so long ago that it's reshaped existence ever since. You can't prove it. And, you know, even with Aquinas's five proofs, you can't, you can't prove God exists. And I'm a big fan of Karl Barth. I'm wearing a Karl Barth t-shirt right now because uh, I knew I was going to have to talk about him today. And Barth, was really just not in, interested in, in belief and proof. He just thinks it's so subjective. I mean, there are a whole lot of people who believe in a whole lot of crazy things and feel like they have proof that those crazy things exist. Um, for Bart, I think for a lot of other people, it's less about what we can prove and more about what the church has said. Mm -hmm. And I, I can get into all kinds of things about you know, I'm sure like you all have heard these things too, the criterion of embarrassment, that there are these embarrassing things that are in scripture. And because they're embarrassing, that makes it more likely that it's true. Because if you were writing a story about your own life, you wouldn't include all the embarrassing stuff. And people have talked about that a lot. I, I think that the, for me, what it comes down to is I can't prove it. I know that there's so many things that based on what we assume is real, it has to be unreal. And yet, Without it, it couldn't explain everything that's happened over the last 2,000 years. A ragtag group of mediocre fishermen who turned the world upside down, um, that's only possible if, some, if, if, if God raised someone from the dead. And in fact, if that person was God. And so, yeah, we, I, I can talk about these moments like RJ has where I've felt something and experienced something. Sometimes it's with someone who's died or... In a, in a baptism, there's all kinds of moments where there's been these like big, big things for me. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm less concerned with trying to prove something because that's not our job. And uh, I, I think, I really do think faith is a gift. Mm -hmm. So going back onto what Taylor is saying, let me ask you, Hunter, how many people had came to faith because they had proof of God? Would be another question to ask. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I kind of bring this one up in the stump the pastor because, you know, you get into a lot of arguments and people's the, the number one thing they always say is like, well, show me proof, like prove it to me. Or like my favorite is when you're going to argue with someone and they're like, prove it. And it's just like, you know, going back to Taylor, you talked about being in college and taking philosophy classes. I took philosophy classes and I remember what is religion was like one of my favorites. We talked about the, the proof 
theology or the proof philosophies of like the theological argument yep, yep, and the cosmological yep. argument. Mm-hmm. And I, and like, I remember I, I grew up in like in church and I had my faith and like, I, I was on the like level of like, I don't, I don't need proof. I've seen things in my life and I've like felt things that I know God is real. But when I was in that class and they were like the theological argument, that's one that like really resonated with me. And for those who don't know what the theological argument is, is the intelligent design theory of, you know, our bodies are so smart. They're so, they're so intricate that it has to be divine intervention or divine creation. It can't just be, uh, how am I saying it? It can't just be, it can't just happen by itself. There has to be something kind of creating and, and, and making and designing it for us that there's no way that it just kind of happened randomly. And I, I think, I, I think there's like a real practical side to it too, mm-hmm. as you're talking about when, you know, Hunter, when people have these conversations, we'll prove it, you know, like, does that does come up all the time. And at least in my experience, those conversations tend to happen at times where you're, you encounter, at least as a pastor, when you encounter people who aren't normally inside the life of the church. So like mm-hmm. at a funeral, for instance, you're, you're really likely to, to proclaim something to people who have never heard it or who really vehemently disbelieve it at like a funeral more so than on a Sunday morning. On Sunday morning, there's some buy-in. People are expecting to hear something like it. And again, I I don't think the job of the pastor is to make people believe something. Um, Fleming Rutledge talks about this all the time. It's not about explaining, it's about proclaiming. And I, I, I'm, I'm a really, I really, really buy into that. And, you know, I was talking about Bart. Bart wrote these lectures from the Godigan dogmatics from 1921. And I read through them this year with some friends and it's just shocking to me. He says over and over again, the worst kind of preaching is the preaching where people stand up and they try to prove that God exists. No one is interested in that. And you're not going to do a very good job, <laughs> you know? So um, stop, stop trying, stop trying to do God's job for God. Um, I think that's why faith is so important too. Cause I mean, you have the, the, I think so many Christmas movies use this, but like seeing is believing in like Santa Claus and stuff. And I feel like the Bible calls us to have faith without with the blind faith of not being able to see it, not being able to prove it. And I think it's interesting. But at the same time, what I would like to say is I truly believe that believing is a gift, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that we disapprove anyone who is longing for proof. And we see it from uh, actually the resurrection text of John chapter 20, where Thomas is the one who is asking for proof. I would not believe what, what you had said until I can, I'd be able to put my finger into the holes of Jesus being crucified on the cross. And Jesus never said, Thomas, you don't have to put your hole in to see it or believe it. Jesus instead reaches out and shows him his hole for Thomas to really do what he wanted to do. So what I think from that is, I believe that proof does not lead us to believe. But at the same time, our desire to pursue after after that proof does make a ground for God to reveal God's self and help us to believe. Yeah, it's great too, Arjun, because that's that's the lectionary text for this Sunday. You know, it's always the text right after Easter. It's so perfect, and I love too that you know Jesus says, "Look, here it is. Here's the hands in my the holes in my hands. Here's the hole in my side. Come, come, touch it." And all these picture at least famous paintings have Thomas like sticking his fingers into Jesus's rib cage. That's actually not in scripture. He says you can do it, but Thomas doesn't even need to do it. Mm-hmm. He's just encountered by God. So 
bodily that he says, my Lord and my God. And this is for me too. This is why we don't just go to uh, church one Sunday, one time, and that's it forever. We have to keep hearing this over and over again. I think every week is a cycle of doubt and belief. You know, on Sunday, it's proclaimed to you and you're like, okay, I get it. And then Monday, you're like, wait, that's crazy. And then Sunday, you hear it again. It's why we're invited to the table over and over and over again. Sometimes it takes a lifetime of hearing God say, I won't abandon you until you realize, oh, that's actually true. That has to be something that we all agree upon, that people who come to church are the ones who are pursuing for that proof rather than they come because of this gung-ho belief that they have. So my perspective is that I, I think I shared it before. If you have those doubts, come to church. But what happens is when we have doubts, we stop coming to church. And in a way, we, in a way, stop our pursuit over that proof. We try to find it outside, but how many times do we do that? I'm not discounting how God can work beyond the church. God can, and God is powerful to do that. But how much more effective can God work among people who are pursuing that proof, pursuing that existence, pursuing that presence of God not, not only in their lives, but also witnessing in the life of others who are gathered in, in that kind of mindset. So I feel like we've kind of uh, answered my last question here. Um, and it, is, it, is it important for Christians to have proof? Um, so I'll let you guys kind of double back on that one. And, and what do you guys think? Taylor, what if you start? Yeah, I mean, we do. Uh, it's called the Eucharist. And um, you know, like the great, the Christ hymn from Philippians, like that God chose to fully dwell in this human being and the fullness of God in him is like, pleased to dwell. Like we know God because we know Jesus. It, God, God is not just like some ethereal thing somewhere out there. It, God is, you know, God is beyond space and time and all that stuff, but God is also in space and time as a person. And we get to like, again, the, the faith is wild. I want to reclaim how wild faith is. We get to eat that person and put that person in us. Um, that's proof. I, I, and, and, you know, because we're on the other side of Easter too, every, every Sunday is a little resurrection Sunday. And I have seen things that have happened again and again to people I've served with and served that I just can't explain. Um, and so sometimes we don't have the proof in our own life, but other people's lives can be proof to us and for us. And I think that's important too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, faith is a gift. Sometimes people get that gift and other times people don't. And I don't know how to explain that except for the fact that sometimes in my life, I need the experiences of other people to help fill in those gaps in my own uh, sort of like faith walk, if that makes it, if that makes any sense. And I don't think it's as important for Christians to have proof. I think it's more important for Christians to have a community that can be there for them when they feel like they don't have proof. Mm -hmm. Um, like for, for people to be able to pray on behalf of other people, to be there for people when they need it. Because, I mean, even the most faithful people I know have had um, moments of darkness. And that's another thing too. I think pastors uh, have a responsibility to be vulnerable about how, how challenging a life of faith can be. Because yeah. if you get up every Sunday in the pulpit and you're, oh, this is exactly how it is. And I believe every word of it, like that's fine. But you're going to be saying that to a whole lot of people who don't feel the same way. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be a disconnect there. So I don't know. That kind of answered the question, mm-hmm. Hunter, but not entirely. Mm-hmm. Marjorie, do you have anything? So what I think is uh, proof is needed. Now, proof is not needed for our faith or belief. 
but proof is needed for us to continue to stay on this, on this course of following. And for me, I talked about how our desire pursuit of that proof becomes a ground for us to believe. Uh, I would share just the fact that I'm here with Taylor is another uh, testimony of that proof. Because I prayed, because when I was leaving Raleigh Court United Methodist Church, and that was one of the most painful decisions that I had to make. I didn't see any reason why I had to, meet, I had to leave, but at the same time, I had this strong call uh, to pursue the next, whatever God is uh, asking me to do. And in that, what had happened is I had prayed that Lord, Rally Court United Methodist Church is your church. And I pray and I ask that you will do it in your ways. And when I heard the appointment of Taylor, and now I get to meet him a little bit more and seeing all the things that I feel like God had really made this appointment, I see it as providence instead of coincidence. Now, it might have been called coincidence when Hunter, you saw that there's only a handful of pastors in our conference who has a, as a professional mic to uh, <laughs> yeah. talk through Zoom. That could have been coincidence. But for me, when I talk with Taylor and we had a phone call before this meeting and it got longer because I even started talking. I had saw providence in this appointment. And the reason why I say that is there's a thin line between coincidence and providence. And the only way you can find and see that this is a proof for God's providence is when you put your intention into it. For me, that was in form of prayer. And for anyone who is seeking for proof, that's why I say, put your intention into pursuing that proof and you'll see how God lays a foundation for you to believe. Interesting. Well, cool guys. So we're going to continue on to our weird Bible stories section. And th- I'm going to do this one a little different than I typically do. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a verse, but I'm not going to tell you where it is. You guys know where it is, but our audience doesn't know where it is in the Bible. So I'm going to read it and then we'll talk about it. And then I'll go back and we'll kind of double go back to it. So it is, each of you must have a spade as part of your equipment. Whenever you relieve yourself, dig a hole with the spade and cover the excrement. That's that's the verse. That's it. So like if I came to you guys and said, you need to preach a sermon on this verse, what would you guys be preaching about? RJ, have you ever preached on this before? No, I have not. So 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 I have um, oh, twice, really? actually. Yeah. Um, so I mean, before I tell you, I mean, RJ, do you want to say what you think about it? Because I can launch into it right away. No, I will start. I will start with this. My experience or my question to the people: Have you ever done this before? I have. I'm a I back. Have. I'm a backpacker. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm an Eagle Scout. There's plenty of times that this has uh, been manifest in my life. Um, okay, so for me, I've preached about this before because this. I think for people in 2021, this is like not a verse people have come across very often. They're probably not going to know what to do with it. But not that long ago in in the grand scheme of things in the life of the church, this was actually a very important scripture. And it was very important during the advent of indoor plumbing. Mm -hmm. So there was a time, friends, before there were bathrooms in churches. In fact, the vast majority of the life of the church, there were not bathrooms in churches. And when indoor plumbing became not only popular, but available to churches, there was a debate in American Christianity about whether or not churches should have bathrooms in them. I'm not making this up. You can go read sermons 
where people got in the pulpit and said, look, I know the trustees think we should get a bathroom and not use the outhouse anymore, but it says, can I say what verse it is? Uh, give it, give it. We're okay. going to talk about it's, context. It says in scripture that you have to, you have to dig a hole outside of the camp and it gets, it goes on in the passage to talk about holiness and keeping things holy. And there, so there were pastors who got up and said, we can't have bathrooms in churches. And then, of course, there was another side that said, are you out of your mind? Like, that's not what it says. Like, you know how great it's going to be if we have bathrooms in churches? I mean, mm -hmm. so so I got up and I preached about this and I said, friends, the reason why so many things are wrong in the church is because we've disobeyed God. We need to get rid of all of our church bathrooms. Mm -hmm. If we get rid of all of our church bathrooms, we'll be holy and faithful again. Bring it. Bring your and spade I, to church. Exactly. <laughs> and I used it as a, as a, um, a way to talk about biblical interpretation. Mm -hmm. And what does it mean to read faithfully? Because there's a whole lot of things in scripture that you can read about that we don't follow anymore. I, I'm not going to give away what the passage is, but the first verse in this chapter says, and, and Hunter, you can edit this out if you want to, because you oh, might yeah. want to. It says, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose penis is cut off shall be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. That, the word of God for the people of God, thanks be to God. I mean, it's there in scripture. Mm-hmm. So there are a whole lot of things, and that, that's a pretty extreme example, but eating shellfish, having a tattoo. I mean, there's a lot of things in scripture that we either willfully disregard or disobey, and then there's other things we lift up. And I, so for me, it's about having a community of faith that interprets this together. It's not just one person who says it's this way or no way. It's about no. trying to wrestle with it and, and, and hear what God is still saying to us about it today, uh, which is not, not an easy task. And... Um, when I did preach about it, uh, everyone said, "Okay, we we get it, Taylor, but we're keeping the bathrooms." Yeah, and the reason I brought so the reason I brought this one today was to kind of talk about like context and how just pulling one verse out of the Bible at random doesn't always get the full message across. Because um, like if you continue to read, uh, I just lost my place. It goes on and says, the camp must be holy for the Lord of your God moves around your camp to protect you and defeat your enemies. He must not see any shameful things among you or he will turn you away. And then even before that, because uh, this is Deuteronomy, the, the verse that I picked was Deuteronomy 23, 13. Um, so even before that, in Deuteronomy 11, 23, 11, it says, toward evening must bathe himself and at sun, sunset he may return to camp. So I kind of read this as, a lot of this is like sanitation stuff. <laughs> like God's saying, like, take care of yourself and, and the Lord will walk among you and, and just kind of be clean. Like, don't just leave poop hanging out on, on the floors. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. It's just, it, I just, when I first read this, that one verse, I was just like, God wants me to bury my poop. So I would do it. But then as I continue to read it, it talks about like bathing yourself and keeping the space holy because the Lord doesn't want to see the dirtiness. Unless it correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, just talk to me a little bit about why context is important when you're reading like verses and stuff. So there's another thing that we have to, I mean, probably two chapters before that is about shaving. Mm -hmm. According to that verse, I'm the the most sinner, hunter halfway, and then look at Taylor. He's not a sinner. He's holy. <laughs> He's got a beard. For those who are just listening, yeah. And I have a mustache. Yeah. So, got to remember the audio version, you know, the, of the podcast. Yeah. So, so I agree with you. Just going back to the context, why it is important is we have to remember when this was written. 
-hmm. and who this was written for. Yeah. So this was written by Moses, God inspired and God dictated how they believe, right? But the context is the Egyptian, I'm sorry, the Israelites who are out of the Egyptian slavery and who are now living in the wilderness for 40 years. And a lot of times we forget how long that was because we don't see that. There's probably the whole Deuteronomy, it's, there's a couple events of it, but it's more about laws and I call it more like policies. So we forget how long 40 years could be. Mm-hmm. And it is, it is a, a, a timeline of how this first generation had actually all died. And the next generation is emerging. And in that time where I go back, that's the background and the backdrop of when this was written and why this was written about. And I can agree with you, Hunter. It's more of sanitation. Mm-hmm. It's not only camping outside for three days. It's camping yeah. outside for 40 years. Yeah. And w- yeah. don't you need an agreement of how to act, which ultimately fulfills how to love each other? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's absolutely about sanitation, and there's also something about holiness. Mm-hmm. You know, it be, and, and because in, in Deuteronomy it says like you are to do this because you are to keep the camp a holy place because God is dwelling with you, and so it, I think it's 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 a both and sort of thing in in an interesting way. I had a former youth of mine who's now in college reach out to me recently, and he said, "Hey, I was I was reading my Bible, and I came across this verse in Paul." And he talks about, you know, women can't have their heads covered in church. And he said, you know, why, why is that there? Why don't we do that anymore? Like, why don't we follow those rules and all this sort of stuff? And I, I wrote back to him. I said, well, if you'd listened to me when you were 14, you know, when I preached about this, if you remembered my sermon from eight years ago, you would have known the, you know, I, I said, um, yeah, we have to remember that every verse in scripture is written for a particular time in a particular place. And yet the church affirms that it's the word of God for the people of God forever and ever. Amen. And there's, there's a challenge in that. Um, You know, Paul writes about women and head coverings, but he only writes that in one letter. That's not in every letter to every single church. There's a problem that's happening in Corinth and he has to try to address it to some extent. Apparently there was a problem with people just doing their business too close to everybody else. And God saw fit to say, well, there's a, there's a way we can handle this. You bury it. Yeah. And some of the <laughs> dietary restrictions, like there's a pretty good chance that it's it's less about the thing itself and more about that. Well, that other people, that's what other people do with those things. And we want to be different than other people because we're not just like every other. We're not like other people. We're God's people. Um, and I think there's some, some things like that today that we have to keep in mind that like God has called us to, to be a holy people. Um, that doesn't mean we have to be, you know, these perfect moral uh, followers of every single thing that we do, we're sinners in need of grace, but God has called us to be different. So if we were going to continue kind of along the line of context, and let's say I was a congregation member, you know, we were picking up a Bible study. I haven't really read a whole lot of the Bible, but I know certain stories. And like, we start reading Verses like Deuteronomy, where what is the best way for someone to find the context for what they're reading? Does that make any sense? So if I if I was to like read like let's say I picked up my Bible and pick up a random verse here, Second uh, Kings four, uh, 
Eliza is Alicia. Alicia helps the poor widow. Um, but like, if I was going to do that, what 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 would be the best way for me to find context? Is it something where it's like, if I'm supposed to read chapter four of Second Kings for my Bible study, do I also need to read the first three or four chapters before reading that one to understand what's really going on? Or is there is there a resource for pastors and people to use to find the context? I know I kind of put you guys on the spot. That wasn't on my outline. <laughs> there, there isn't. Um, there might be some resources. Um, I'm not going to talk about a particular resource, but I would say it's always good to know the entire forest before we go into uh, look into one tree. Mm-hmm. And I believe that there's benefit of both ways, looking at the tree and looking at the forest. So what I do a lot in one of I, what I call a Bible 101 course is just kind of give an entire timeline of the Israelite history and see where the books of the Bible fit into this timeline. And when, when that is happening, a lot of times people are, okay, Deuteronomy, this was written in a time when they were in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. So that gives some kind of idea. I don't know if there's a resource out there that does it. Um, I would make one. <laughs> I would say I would say that's some of the things that you might have to go to your pastor and ask if that pastor can provide those backgrounds. Yeah, so I, I, I agree. It's, I forget who told me this right when I first became a pastor, but they said, you are now the resident theologian of your community. Mm-hmm. And that means people are going to come to you with questions. It doesn't mean you have to have the perfect answer to every question, but you have to be prepared to be able to answer certain questions. I mean, this is why pastors in the United Methodist tradition have to go to seminary. You know, we have to have a, a master's, a three-year master's degree so that we get it because we're tasked with these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Hunter, the really unsatisfying answer to your question is um, you just have to read the Bible. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's just um, Jason Michelle, one of my dear friends, he's also part of the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast. We find ourselves lamenting um, and I, this isn't about any particular or specific clergy person, but gosh, you just kind of have to read the Bible. That's it. That's the whole thing. It, it's, it's that's it. And I'd be great if lay people read it too, but it would be a nice start if pastors were reading scripture all the time. Mm-hmm. Can I also add on to it, Taylor? Uh, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to teach us instead of relying on resources that are produced. So I know that this is not a popular way of teaching, but this is an old Korean pastor way of teaching. There was, a pa- there was a person who was wondering about faith and wanted to know more about faith. So the pastors direct- came to the pastor and the pastor said, go and read the Bible cover to cover. So that person went and read the Bible cover to cover, how painful it was, but still, and came back and said, I don't understand it. I don't get it. So I have more questions than when I came to the questions, first time. Right? <laughs> so the, the answer was, go and read it again. And it goes on, go and read it again. And the more we read, I think this goes to us as pastors as well. We, like Taylor said, we don't have all the answers. But the more we read, we are instructed by the Holy Spirit to understand it better. I'm not saying that we understand it perfectly, but we understand it better. So the real question is how, instead of what kind of resource can we help, is really more of going back to my, my previous conversation, do we really pursue and devote ourselves to know? And mm-hmm. in that, do we really read? Yeah, and not, not to plug my own podcast, but the, one of the, re- I don't always preach the lectionary, but I think the lectionary is a remarkable tool 
because it's four readings every Sunday on a three-year cycle, Old Testament, Psalm, an epistle, and a gospel reading. And it doesn't cover the entirety of the Bible, but every three years, if you follow it, you get most of it. The challenge with that is, or the challenge of not having a lectionary is pastors can just pick and choose whatever they want to preach on every single Sunday. And you can have a pastor who just preaches from the gospel of Mark every Sunday over and over and over and over again. And Mark's cool. I like Mark, uh, but Mark ain't Isaiah. And you kind of need to know what's, what's happening in Isaiah to understand what's going on in Mark and vice versa. And so I like the lectionary because it holds me accountable to the whole of Canon. And the other thing I'd say is I had a professor in seminary, Stephen Chapman, who said once a year, you should try to preach the whole Bible in one sermon hmm. and you should do it every single year. If you have classes, if you have, you know, disciple classes, if you have Bible studies, you, you can do kind of what RJ you were describing about like that sort of teachable stuff, but not everybody's going to come to those classes. But if you give one Sunday a year to saying, this is going to be difficult, but I'm going to try to tell you the whole great scope and narrative of scripture in this one service, then at least people have heard it. That's great. Um, and so I, I kind of try to do it every year. It's always not a very good sermon because it's, it's not meant to be done that way. It's like why you can't, you can't, um, you can't put the whole of the Bible in a tweet. It doesn't work that way. It does require you like that great, that story, you know, of coming back and doing it over and over and over again. But that's one thing that I've tried to do to help get people to see the, to see the whole forest at least once a year. And I have a title for that garden to garden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. From one tree to the other. Exactly. I think it's interesting because like uh, as a, a pop culture person, I love Marvel, Star Wars. And like I get so I mean, so right now I'm watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier every Friday. And as soon as the episode ends, I get on YouTube, I look up the heavy spoiler show and I watch them nitpick every little thing. But there's times where like I'm reading the Bible and I just don't get that interested into it. But like if I'm really thinking about the entire story from cover to cover, it's an insane story that has all kinds. I mean, they're not Easter eggs because the Bible isn't like coming off of a comic book or something. But it does have so many cool stories that I think a lot of people just don't haven't dove into. And if people just would have the same interest in the bible than they do in like marvel and star wars i think it'd be really cool real quick i want to make a case for the fact that there are easter eggs in scripture and there's a lot of them so you just very briefly you just like flipped up open scripture to second kings and you saw the story of elisha Mm -hmm. and then the widow and the rain coming down like if you don't know you can just read that as one story but the fact that elisha does that for a widow it connects with some of the ministries that jesus does particularly for the widows, the widowed. And, and that's that's not just one story that happens one time. That is an Easter egg to other stories that happen in other places. So like reading the Gospels, if you know what's going on in the Old Testament, when you read the Gospels, you're like, wait a minute, I've heard this before. Wait a minute, this sounds really familiar. And that's the beauty of getting, um, like one resource that might help is, is a study Bible. So not like the Pew Bibles that we have. A study Bible has usually a, a, a pretty healthy amount of annotation at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And it will say, depending on what which one it is, like, go check out Psalm 19, because what's happening here is also in Psalm 19. And that's when you start to see these Easter eggs. That's a I call it the spider whip of scripture, but like calling them Easter eggs is probably a better way to do it. Because it really is far more connected and cohesive than I think we give it credit for being. And I think Taylor, we we may have just become a, a friends and start a new series. If we just become best friends, yeah, I'm with uh, you. I think it'd be so cool to put together something of like 
almost like a heavy spoiler show or a new rock stars. If you are into Marvel, those are like the two big like YouTubers that find all of the little like, well, and this license plate at this scene in this TV show relates back to a comic. I think it'd be cool to do something like that for the Bible. But so let's let's kind of move on uh, into can our. I, can I just go back? Hunter, actually, they are all written in commentaries. There's tons and tons of commentaries. The only thing is those commentaries are inaccessible. Mm hmm. And only pastors read it, not out yeah. of Yeah, so you need to find something that is going to be for the common Christian of like, like someone like me who didn't go to seminary or don't have the the want to read a commentary. Uh, but so let's kind of let's kind of move on to our pastoral advice. Um, and typically, this section of the podcast would be a question that I would have, like, a, if a congregation member came to you with this issue, what would you tell them? But I think. A lot of people don't know that pastors are also not just preachers, but they're also there for the community. Um, so let's just kind of, I just want to kind of generally talk about like pastoral care and like what a pastor does for the community. Um, so in a, in, a, in a way, can I ask you guys, what is pastoral care? So my definition of pastoral care is pastoral care is not counseling. But at the same time, pastoral care is invitation to your life. And that's, I think that's the honor that we have as pastors, that we can be invited into the storm of a person's life, that we can walk with them, that we can pray for them and be that person to be a companion. Because, I mean, some people think that it's counseling. Some people think that it is going to reveal something in our life that is so sinful, somewhat like a confession booth for Catholics, mm -hmm. but it isn't. It's just an invitation. I'm going through the storm. Can you just keep me in your prayers? Can you walk with me? Can you be a coffee, coffee buddy in the times where I just feel so doubt? And that's what I believe is an honor that I can have, that I'd be willing to do and be part of that person's life. A lot of times people don't invite me, which makes my heart saddened. Uh, or not know that I'm available or think that I'm too busy to be available. But at the same time, there's another underlying thing that our notion of coming to church is because we already made it and done it. And me reaching out, disqualify, disqualify me as a believer is what hardens my heart the most. Because that means that I can't reach out to them or other pastors when I'm going through those storms as well. So that's that's my take or definition. Buddy, I am so 100% with you on everything you said, especially it is one of the best things a pastor can ever say to someone who, because people come. I mean, I'm sure that RJ, you would affirm this. I have had people in my life come to me and unload all kinds of stuff. And they almost always say, you're the first person I told this to. And one of the best things a pastor can say in that moment is, I think therapy might be a good thing for you to pursue. Now, in the 1990s, there was like this whole therapeutic model of ministry where pastors felt like they were insignificant. And so they went and got these degrees and they wanted to be therapists. And like some of them are, but the overwhelming majority of us are not. We go to seminary to learn about scripture, to learn about theology. We do not go to learn about like behavioral sciences or anything like that. So I try to encourage people, especially if it feels like that's what's necessary. And I think that's an, it's an invitation. It's a gift to be able to give them permission to go, to go do those things. I think pastoral care is truth-telling. And this is like Stanley Hauerwas's big thing. 
um, especially in the realm of pastoral care, pastors will encounter moments where people are being fed lies over and over again. And it's really hard, but you have to be the person that tells the truth. So an example is like when you're in the hospital and uh, someone's dying and the doctors and the family say, oh, you're going to make it like you're going to get back. You're going to get better. And, and sometimes actually all the time, um, no one makes it out of life alive. And so sometimes the pastor is tasked with saying, I know it's important to have hope, but there's also a very good chance that this, this might be the last time you get to spend with your family. And I want to make sure we're doing that well. That's hard. It's, it's not an easy thing, but let me tell you, being a pastor is a privilege. You get to be with people in moments in their life that nobody else does. You, you get to be, sometimes you get to be the first person to hold a baby outside of a family uh, sometimes you're the last person to hold someone before they die. I love to do weddings. I get the best view at a wedding. I, I get to, you know, everyone's looking up. I get to see that couple right there, make that promise to each other. I love doing weddings. It's so much fun. Pastoral care is being there for people in the midst of life from the deepest valleys to the highest mountaintops and, and saying, I'm here. And you're also saying this whole church is here with you in, in, in a sense. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's like five different definitions of what oh, pastoral yeah. care is. I think it's great. I, I think truth telling is kind of my my big one. It and like Taylor said, it's an honor to be forefront of their <clears throat> excuse me events. But I also say, pastors can be the resources of connecting others who had gone through that same experience. So what I normally do is, if someone goes through, comes and says, you know, I'm going through this. I asked that person's permission if I can connect them with someone who already went through it because I did not go through it. I don't know how to, how to cope in those situations. Uh, I'll be definitely praying for that person, but who would be a better resource or a comfort who have already gone through that? And the pastor is like the center point of knowing all those around. And in our language, Hunter is the best person who can break down the silos. Because until that person reveals and opens that up, they might not never knew that, that the other family had gone through the same situation. Mm -hmm. So I believe pastoral care not only is a mandate for pastors uh, that we are willing to be part of their journey, but pastoral care also is an open door for a stronger community when we are coupling those people had gone and experiences and that you know in another way is discipleship as well so i always encourage people to come but that is not always the case right so just one quick thing and that to that point um if you do know you can make those connections but sometimes you don't know and i remember years ago uh, i preached through a series about you know controversies things that you don't often hear about in church but we probably should be talking about in church and, and one of those one of those sundays we talked about suicide and you know, I, I preached about suicide and I, I used Romans eight and we sort of talked about it. And then throughout the whole series, we were having time after worship about an hour. So it wasn't just me saying something and people go home, but here we have another hour. I want to hear from you what you heard and how you're sitting with it. So we can continue to have this conversation. So it's not just like a monologue. Yeah. And after I preached about suicide, um, it was unbelievable how all these people said, my uncle committed suicide. 
and I'm still carrying that grief around. Or, you know, I think my neighbor committed suicide or a coworker, or there was a person in the church who had committed suicide like six months before I came and no one told me about it and they had never talked about it. And they opened that up and then people started connecting with each other on their own. But unless I had been willing to sort of preach about something that's a little difficult, I, I don't think we had ever, we would have ever gotten to a point where people were going to be able to make those connections. So sometimes it happens because, you know, and sometimes you have to make space for the spirit to sort of work and, and reveal those things um, too. Well, awesome, and th guys. This might be something that we can kind of tag along. Band meetings. Band meetings were those gatherings where people came with their struggles and their griefs. And the question is, how many of times do we do it in our church or promote it or connect people who have the same grief or experiences? That's uh, some of the lost jewels that we have in our Methodist church. Did you say band meetings? Yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, cool, guys. Well, um, we're running out of time a little bit. Um, so I, one thing I like to do at the very end is to let you guys both pitch what you guys have going on in your churches or what you have going on in your lives, whether Taylor, that's your podcast you want to pitch again, or RJ, if you guys have anything going on in your office that people can help with. So I'm going to give you guys a few minutes to pitch yourselves. Taylor, I'll let you go first. Crackers and Grape Juice, awesome podcast. We have podcasts we release almost every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, mostly every Monday and Friday. And uh, mine is the one on Monday, Strangely Warm, to talk about scripture. It's pretty cool stuff. Uh, I, we also have published a couple books on sermons. So we have one called I Like Big Butts, but it's a butt with only one T because Paul likes to use conjunctions a lot. And that's, we thought it'd be funny to put that as the title of a book. And then we have another one on the parables. We have one coming out, I think May the 4th, if we, if it comes out in time, that's about things Jesus never said. These sort of things we throw around in church, like, you know, um, uh, God helps those who help themselves, not in scripture. And uh, so that's coming out. So we have books, we have different resources that we, we do. We do uh, studies with different um, theologians, usually on Monday nights. We just finished one up with Philip Carey. He's a Lutheran um, theologian. I think Williman, Will Williman is going to be joining us sometime uh, in Eastertide to talk to us about the state of the church today, post-coronatide, in the midst of coronatide. So we got a lot of things going on. And then for me personally, uh, yeah, I'm going to be moving to Roanoke. And I'm going to be uh, stepping in the pulpit that uh, RJ was in. And that's going to be really, really fun. And uh, I can't wait to hound him with lots of questions about what does this mean? And why did you all do it this way? And, and all that other sort of fun stuff. And so uh, where, but yeah, where, where can you find uh, your podcast and your books? Crackersandgrapejuice.com. Try to keep things simple. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. All those good things. You can find the all the podcasts. Crackers and Grape, Crackers and Grape Juice, Hermited, Extrangely Warm. They're all on every podcast thing you can get on spotify apple Podcasts, google play all the all the good places and i have a blog thinkandletthink.com stole that from john wesley every sermon i've ever preached is there audio visual and the text so oh, cool use those resources all right rj what you got going on in your office and we have a lot going on but i would just uh, add one pitch uh, we will soon release a serving ministries uh facebook group and the purpose of doing that is to be conjunction with our annual conference Facebook, but make a way for us to share uh, resources and mission opportunities for our churches to come together. There are a couple of things that we have in mind, like our annual conference offering will be uh, geared toward uh, feet, addressing the food and insecurity in, in the Commonwealth. And that's where our offering is going to be. And I had 
I'm just submitting this uh, report to Steve saying that we should aim for $200,000. We had never reached $200,000 for many, many years. But if each church in our conference contributes $200, every church does it, we will easily reach 200000 That will be directly benefiting the food and insecurity problem that we have. Even after COVID, I think that's going to prolong for it, with us for a long time. Our annual conference on the last day, which is June 19th at 2 o'clock, after we have the commissioning, uh, not commissioning, commission to mission service, that's a closing service, starting at 2 o'clock, each church will have an opportunity to drop off all the foods and the kits that they had collected to a district site. These information are going to come out, and they're going to be on the website, they're going to be on our Facebook page, but also that Facebook group that we are about to start will be the main source of all of these informations and providing mission opportunities. So keep that in mind and I hope that we'll be engaged. All right, guys. Serve together. Well, thank you guys for coming on the show and uh, we'll see everybody next week.